This morning we're going to start a new study, and I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Numbers. Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I've never done a study on Numbers. I'm not sure if I've ever preached a sermon from Numbers. But I want us to come to the book this morning. And I'm going to take nine messages from the book. I know some people go verse by verse, verse through the whole book. And uh, I am impressed that they can do that. But uh, there are some spots that are really slow plowing. And um, I want to pick a couple of highlights to give you a taste of the book. That's my desire in the coming weeks. Numbers chapter 1. Father, we pray that as we open your word this morning that you would speak to our hearts. Thank you for this book and its place in the Old Testament, its purpose. And we pray that as we uh, look into it in the next few weeks that you would give us a better understanding of you as we see you interact with your people. And as we see your people respond to you, we ask, Lord, that in it all, that you would help us come to terms with what you expect of us, that you would help us get a grip on what it means to be a holy God, separate from everything that is normal to us, separate from everything that is evil, and dedicated unto everything that is righteous and holy and pure. We ask, Lord, that you would help us as we grapple through the, some of the passages that are difficult to understand, that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us, and that in light of our time that we spend here, that we would emerge better understanding our responsibility before you and better understanding you, the one we will spend eternity with. So we thank you in advance for what you're going to do we bring our prayers to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers chapter 1. Follow along. I'm just going to read the first three verses from this book. Numbers 1, verses 1 to 3. Then the, then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. Now I'm going to stop there, because uh, what I want to tell you as we open the book of Numbers is that the title of the book comes from the fact that God instructs Moses to number the people in chapter 1 and he does it again in chapter 6 and in light of those things that he told Moses and his brother Aaron to do the book gets its name numbers you're gonna find numbers in chapter 1 and 26 the first census is taken shortly after they left Egypt a month after they have built the tabernacle and the second census is taken 38 years later after they've walked through the wilderness and are on the, verge, on the verge of going into the promised land. God tells Moses to take another census. 
Numbers chapter 1 and 26 all have to do with counting the people. The author of the book is who? Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are his books. And Moses obviously then wrote the book of Numbers. The scope of the book picks up where the book of Exodus leads off. Uh, historically, the details in Exodus conclude, and the book of Numbers picks up from that point. It monitors 38 years of wandering in the desert. It records the details. During that time, we are told that everybody in the crowd of over 2 million people who left Egypt originally, everyone over 20 died in the desert, died in the wilderness. And the reason is because they wouldn't believe God when he brought them to the outskirts of the promised land, was about to take them in, and they didn't believe that God was with them and would provide for them. So the book of Numbers is about this uh, 38 years in the desert as this entire generation dies and is buried in the sands of the wilderness. Now the details begin one month after the erection of the tabernacle and there is a picture or a, uh, a model of the tabernacle given to you in your uh, sermon outlines not going to go into a lot of detail there this morning. I will next week. But you're going to see how the clan, actually the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel are positioned around the tabernacle. And you come to terms with the fact that God is a God of order and structure. We'll see that more next week. As I mentioned, it's not going to be a verse-by-verse -verse study, except that the places we come to, the accounts that we retell, will be verse-by-verse. -verse. The themes of the book are a couple. Themes of the book include, first of all, God's love for his people. It is clear in this passage, God loves his people. He puts up with a lot of garbage from them. But it is clear he sticks with them because he loves them. And the second thing you're going to see in this book is that God is a holy God. God is a holy God, meaning that he is separated from everything that is common to us. He is separated from everything that is earthly, even though he created the world. It has been affected by sin, and that affects him and his attitude toward the world. God is completely holy. That means that there is no unrighteousness in him at all. And in our minds, we can't even begin to conceive of what a person would be like who wasn't just a little bit dirty from the world. But God is completely holy, separated from everything that is common, separated unto everything that is righteous and pure and godly. And it is a book of God's holiness in contrast to the foolishness of God's people who didn't take God seriously. And my, my brothers and sisters, if there was ever a time when believers don't take the holiness of God seriously, it is today. It was true in Paul's day, and we're going to come to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in just a minute. But in our culture today, we have made God and his person a very common individual, 
and we have lowered him to our understanding rather than allowed him to remain where he is to stand back and to be in absolute awe to be absolutely overwhelmed at the significance of the holy God and that is the message that Moses clearly demonstrates to us in these in the words of this book now what I've chosen to do is to take you now to the book of first Corinthians chapter 10 because that chapter and the opening 13 verses is all about the book of numbers and you're gonna see why in just a minute our introduction to the book of numbers will be from the New Testament first Corinthians chapter 10 the opening 13 verses in this passage the Apostle Paul prepares his readers for the lessons that we're going to learn from the Old Testament book of Numbers the Apostle Paul introduces the book of Numbers in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 now I want to tell you at the outset that the 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is not about people who had salvation and then they lost it 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is about ministry it's about a person's relationship with Jesus Christ and it has to do with with what what the context calls liberty Christian liberty the privileges that God gives to his people and sometimes people then take those liberties to an excess and it demonstrates to us how God responds to that some of the most shocking things you're gonna see in the Bible are in the book of Numbers it's almost a PG 13 book and I would recommend that you don't bring children into the messages except the fact that it's the Word of God it is the Word of God and applicable to the to the people of Corinth 2000 years ago and applicable to the people of Simi Valley in 2010 that will become even more obvious to you as we work through the book now in the opening four verses God gave blessing to his people in the past God gave blessing to his people in the past that's clear follow along as I read Paul says for I do not want you to be unaware brethren that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ now I just want to touch on these verses just briefly I want to talk about the blessings of Christ to his people in the past these blessings included first of all guidance if you're taking notes first blank first blessing is guidance for I do not want you to be unaware brethren Paul wanted the Corinthian believers to be able to read the book of numbers and connect the dots to the days of Corinth 
In a similar way, I'm convinced that Paul would want the believers in Simi Valley in 2010 to be able to read the book of Numbers and connect the dots between them and Moses' experience with his people in, this, in the Old Testament. The first blessing was guidance. The second one was protection. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And just as God protected his people in the Old Testament, he protected the people of Corinth, and he protects the people of Simi Valley today. God many times miraculously took care of his people when they were faced with potential destruction by the Egyptians and other possible enemies. Guidance, protection, verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses and the cloud and the sea. God gave them leadership. Third blessing is leadership. Now you really don't know what this uh, verse is all about until you understand the phrase, what does it mean to be baptized into Moses? Well, in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, it tells us that we are baptized into Christ Jesus, meaning that we are completely identified with Christ. So to be baptized into Moses in the Old Testament was that people completely identified with Moses. They believed that he was God's man brought on the scene to lead them out of Egypt. And they believed that because he was God's man and because he loved God and loved them that they could follow him. They allowed him to lead. So God's blessings included guidance, protection, verse 2, leadership. Verse 3, food. God gave them manna to eat for 38 years, six days a week, God gave them food to eat. We have no idea what it would be like to be in a crowd of two and a half million people leaving Egypt and then wandering in the wilderness for 38 years trying to find enough to eat. God took care of them miraculously. He provided food. This food was spiritual, meaning that it was designed to teach them a spiritual lesson, that they could trust God. When things were going their way as well as when things were going south, they could trust him. That's one of the lessons that Paul wanted the saints at Corinth to understand. And that's one of the lessons as we read the book, you're going to be re-encouraged again to be, and, and reminded that you can trust God when things in your environment are going south. Gave him food, verse 4, he gave him drink, spiritual drink, which came from the rock and the rock was Christ. He was capable of providing for the needs of all of the people because verse 4 says, or verse 3 says, and all ate the same spiritual food. Verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink. Without exception, he was able to take care of them with spiritual food and drink. Which reminds me, next Sunday, we're going to provide spiritual food and drink bread and cup we call it it's an opportunity to be reminded once again of the rock Christ and his ministry in the New Testament his spiritual ministry for you and me by going to the cross and paying the penalty for your sin and mine 
And he's given us that symbol to help us to remember. And the reason is because in this world we forget. And we don't think about stuff like that as often as we should. So next Sunday, be important for you to prepare your heart for that. So what you see here in these opening four verses is that God blesses his people when they are given Christian liberty and they function in the context of that liberty and they don't take those liberties to excess. God gives them uh, guidance, protection, leadership, food, and drink. Now, in verses 5 to 10, God gave warnings to his people in the past. He not only gave them blessings, but he also gave them warnings. When they took their liberties to excess, God judged the people. And it is reasonable to believe when you and I take our liberties to excess that God will bring judgment into our lives. Maybe not immediately, we call this the age of grace and we don't get hammered like they did in the Old Testament immediately but sooner or later there are going to be consequences for taking our liberties to excess and that's what Paul wanted the saints at Corinth to understand and we want the saints at Simi Valley to comprehend as well notice verse 5 nevertheless with most of them God was not well pleased for they, for they were laid low in the wilderness. That's an interesting verse. Most of them. Look at uh, that expression. In fact, uh, in my Bible, I've under, underscored most of them. And then you drop down to verse 7 and you read some of them. My translation. Verse 8 says in that verse, verse 8, some of them. Verse 9, some of them. And verse 10, some of them. So you've got most of them in verse 5, and then he divides it up into smaller groups. Some of them, verse 7, were idolaters. Some of them, verse 8, were immoral. And some of them, verse 9, tried the Lord. And some of them, in verse 10, grumbled. So you have all of those, some of them, contributing to most of them. And what you find is that most of God's people were a terrible disappointment to him in the Old Testament, in the days of the Numbers. So uh, it says in verse 5 that um, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. That expression, laid low, is a term that is used in the aftermath of a hurricane. And you have seen enough weather pictures of the aftermath of a hurricane to know that everything is leveled. It's smashed to the ground. So in our modern vernacular, what uh, Paul is saying is that when you take your blessings from God to an excess and you abuse the liberties that God has given you he will move into your life like an Indiana tornado into a mobile home park he will blow you away in judgment if you believe that you can violate the holiness and righteousness of God. 
I want to say, folks, it's pretty sobering stuff. But that's the way Paul begins here in verse 5 as he describes the details of the book of Numbers. Now, in verse 6, he says, Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So what he is saying is that when you look in the uh, book of Numbers, you're going to find examples. If you drop down to verse 11, it says, Now these things happened to them as an example. That word in the original language means it's a model. It's a type. Means you can read in the Old Testament book of Numbers of the stories of God and his relationship with his people and you can see them abusing their privileges and God responding to it. And as you look at it, you can evaluate and compare the types to your own life, your own experience. God has recorded these things and given them to the Corinthian believers and to the saints at Simi Valley for the purpose of helping you understand more than anything else who God is, who God really is. These stories become then a pattern for us to follow. But not only that, look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction. They were written for our warning. They were written for our admonition. Meaning that if we violate in the same way, we will experience similar consequences. God doesn't let us go. People he loves, he loves them too much to let them go. Now see, in our culture today, if we have family members or friends that are living in sin, rather than going to them and confronting them, we say, well, they're living their life and they're responsible for themselves and I'm not to, to get m myself involved. The loving thing for me to do is to stand back and don't judge. The book of Numbers is going to put a completely different spin on that. The book of Numbers is going to give you the impression that if a member of your family is in sin, you really ought to go and speak to them and encourage them to repent because God is a holy God and he may not bring consequences today or tomorrow but sometimes you can bank on it it's coming because God is not mocked and whatsoever a man or a woman sows that shall he or she also reap Numbers puts a completely different perspective on that and then he says in verse, five, uh, verse 6, uh, Now these things happened as examples so that they would not crave evil things as they also craved. Verse 11, Now these things happened to them as example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That last phrase, upon whom the ends of the ages have come, basically means that it was applicable in the days of 
the numbers. It was applicable in the days of Corinth, and it is applicable in the days of Simi Valley 2010. These principles are cross-cultural and have nothing to do with time because people are basically all the same. First uh, warning, verse 6 then, do not crave evil. Do not follow the example of people who, are, who, are, who have passionate desire for things that God has said no to. It says that they craved evil things. They literally craved a craving. Numbers chapter 11 verse 4 is the reference. Numbers chapter 11 verse 4, 5 and 6 says, The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We will remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. 38 years, six days a week, manna. What's for lunch? Manna. What's for dinner? Manna. What's for breakfast? Manna. It's an interesting perspective here. They were craving evil things. Is it an evil thing to want variety in what you eat? I don't think so. But it is evil how you complain to get it and the way God's people went about it here in the Old Testament. If you look at that passage, notice the way it begins, verse 4, the rabble who were among them. In the King James Version, it says the mixed multitude. It means that it all started with the folks who were not uh, committed to the community. They were the non-Jewish folks. They weren't the stakeholders. But it's obvious that stakeholders become influenced and affected by the mixed multitude or what he uses here in my translation, the rabble. It's the people who are involved. They come and they look and they watch, but they don't put anything in the offering plate and they don't contribute any ministry to, to what's going on to the community. They're just basically there to sit and to watch and to render a judgment. <laughs> there are folks like that in the church. And from them, many times, criticism come, evil craving here. But it's just, it strikes me how easily the committed are affected by the rabble and how, how evil craving can become contagious. When one person feels like they're deprived, another person will pick up the same cry. Do not crave evil is the first warning. The second one is found in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now this is a reference to uh, Exodus 32, not a numbers account, but it still counts. Do not pursue idolatry. An idol is anything that we allow to replace Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. Anything or anyone. <clears throat> 
Arthur Wallace said, an English Christian writer, an idol may be defined as any person or thing that has usurped in the heart of the place of preeminence that belongs to the Lord. Things in this world and people in this world can become my idol. They mean more to me than God does. And the way you can tell that that individual has become your idol is what happens when that individual goes sideways with God. What you find in many homes from many parents is, well, we love our son, we love our daughter, and we're going to stand by them even though they're in gross sin. The message here is, I love my son, I love my daughter more than I love God in his holiness. Now I want to tell you folks, there usually comes a time in a parent's life or in an individual's life where you need to identify with the God who loves you, a God who has declared himself to be holy. You either identify lot, stock, and barrel with him, or you declare that you really don't love him or care about him as much as you do this person over here who's making a mockery of everything you hold dear, who's making a mockery of the holiness of God. Yeah, the book of Numbers will put everything in a different perspective. We're not to crave evil then. Warning number two, do not pursue idolatry. By the way, um, it says the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Those words are not bad words. God doesn't care if you eat and drink and play. Eating and drinking, God gave lots of festivals to his people, lots of occasions for people to have a good time eating and drinking together. And playing means... uh, having a good time. There's nothing wrong with playing. There's no evil in this at all unless the eating and the drinking goes to an excess. Ooh. Unless the eating and the drinking contributes to the playing which goes to an excess. Then God gets upset. God gets real upset. Why? Because he's a holy God. He is not a God of of excess. When you read the book of Numbers, you get the impression that I'm to be continually asking myself whether I function in word or deed, am I giving honor and glory to Jesus Christ in my eating, in my drinking, and in my playing. And if I take those liberties to an excess, I have violated the holiness of God and there is retribution to be paid. Do not crave evil. Do not pursue idolatry. uh, Do not act immorally. You know, for this one, let's turn back to Numbers 25. I want you to see it. Numbers 25. We got a minute here. I got to tell you, though, when I read this one, this one blew me away as I spend a little time with it. 
While you're turning there, I'm going to read verse 8. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. The issue here is immorality. Uh, pornea. Pornea is a general term for sexual immorality. It affects uh, married people and unmarried people. And it affects anything that you and I might conceive of, whether an act or a thought, that is not holy. It's based upon uh, the passage here in Numbers 25. Uh, While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, verse 2. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Woo! I thought God was a loving, gentle God. He's really upset here. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal or Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel. By the way, this young man's name was Zimri. Look at verse 14. All of this is going on, and uh, these people are being killed, and Zimri comes in with a Midianite woman, and in light of what we read here, takes her into a tent and has his way with her. It's almost like in your face. Verse 7. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it, in other words, Phineas is the grandson of Aaron, he rose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went in after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through. The man of Israel, Zimri, and the woman through the body, so the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by that plague were 24,000. Whoa! Are you kidding me? Phineas, a descendant of Aaron, which means he's a priest, has just observed as these leaders of this rebellion have been killed, and Zimri walks in with a Midianite lady, a pagan lady, and basically says to the whole thing and to the holy God, in your face, takes her into the tent, has his way with her. Phineas takes a spear goes in and runs them through. He shish kebabs both of them. You know, in our culture, Phineas would probably be called into question. Phineas, <laughs> what are you doing here? You can't do that. You can't take the law into your own hands like that. And in our courts today, obviously, he would be reprimanded, probably uh, put in jail, but surely uh, disdained by the public. 
Notice what God thinks of Phinehas when you look down at verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Wow. I get the impression God is a very holy God and when we say that he is a holy God it means that he lives by rules that I can't even begin to conceive of. And here's this guy Phineas who is offended at Zimri, offended at what he has done. And while everybody is just standing there watching, wondering, what shall we do? What shall we do? He takes a spear and goes into the tent and kills them both. And God says, way to go, Zimri. Way to go, Zimri. You are jealous for my holiness. You are jealous for my holiness, and I applaud you. My covenant with you will be that you will be a part of an eternal priesthood. Congratulations. And I stand there in awe. The message here is, well, it starts verse 1. Some of God's people began dating the non-believers of Moab. Verse 2, these people began attending the parties of the non-believers of Moab. Verse 3, these few danced to the music of Baal and Peor. And the last part of verse 3, God was angry with the people. Moses was instructed to cut the leaders of this group down to the, to the dance floor, which they did in verses 4 and 5. So when I ask the question, I wonder what God thinks about dating a non-believer. I get the impression that dating leads to a relationship that is not pleasing to a holy God. And if I want to ask the question, well, what, do you th what does God think about dancing to music that is not Christian? I got the answer here. What, do you, what does God think about taking something that's good and taking it to an excess? Taking it to an excess. God was angry with the people. I can tell you, based upon the book of Numbers, what God thinks of dating a non-believer. I can tell you what he thinks. I can tell you what he thinks about a Christian going to a dance, dancing to, a mu to music that is not honoring to the Lord. I can tell you what he thinks. I can tell you what he thinks about a Christian young man or a Christian young woman marrying a non-believer. I can tell you what he thinks. I can tell you what a righteous and holy God, how he feels about those things. I get that from Numbers. And I understand holiness in a different way than what I've grown accustomed to believe about holiness. Well, quickly, verse 9. 
back to 1 Corinthians 10. We'll talk about this more later. Verse 9, Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. To try the Lord means to put him to the test. means do not challenge the Lord. That's the fourth one. Do not challenge the Lord. Do not put him to the test. Do not question him when he has said no to something, when he has withheld something from you. Do not question him. Do not question the person that he has placed in position of authority over you, which is what they did. They questioned Moses, and God took it personally. When God places leadership over me, he does it for my well-being. And there are ways that I can appeal to that person over me. There are ways that I can appeal to God with respect. But when I take my liberty to an excess and believe, when I, be when I am made to believe that I have rights to have this or to have that, sometimes it's an offense that God takes issue with. And there are consequences. Quickly, verse 10, nor grumble, do not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Do not gripe. Number five, grumbling and complaining seem to have been chronic problems among God's people in the Old Testament. Over the years in ministry, I've heard a little grumbling and complaining myself in the church in the body of Christ. And you know what else? I've grumbled and complained. Sometimes too much. I grumble and complain a lot about politics right now. But I'm beginning to think I've got to be careful. If I believe that God is sovereign and God places leaders over me that I like and that I don't like, but God has placed them there doesn't mean that I don't have an opinion but it does mean that I'm careful I better be careful about griping I've been convicted I gripe way more than I pray for the President of the United States and I couch it in politics well I'm a conservative and he's a liberal who put him there? God. The message is straighten up, Macintosh. Straighten up. You need to do more praying for him than criticizing him. I understand. Yes, sir. Do not gripe. And then verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And we've already been over that verse. These failures have been preserved as a lesson for us. That's what he's saying. As he closes out this section, these failures have been preserved as a lesson for us. Verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed that he does not fall. You're not better than the folks in the Old Testament, and neither am I. 
These failures have been preserved to remind us that we are not above them. And verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. This will be the conclusion here. First thing he says here, by way of conclusion, none of us is uniquely tempted. It's all common to man. Those before us in Corinth were tempted the same way. Those in the days of Moses, as he wrote the book of Numbers, were tempted the same way. Take, tempted to take the good things of God to an excess. Number two, None of us are tempted beyond our endurance. None of us are tempted beyond our endurance. And notice that this promise is grounded on the faithfulness of God. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Sometimes I think I'm being tempted beyond what I'm able, and I forget that God is faithful. The fact that I am not tempted beyond what I am able is based upon the faithfulness of God. Verse 3, uh, uh, number 3. None of us can say we could not help it. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. None of us can say we can't help it. Why? Because God always gives us an out. There is a way out. There is a way of escape allowing us to endure, allowing us to carry the temptation. And number four, in light of verses 1 to 12, none of us can say we have not been properly instructed this morning. After seeing the experience from these Old Testament believers and given this passage this morning, we cannot say that we have not been warned. You want to do your own thing, go your own way? Go ahead, try it. Try it. But remember, God is a holy God. And his values are separate from everything that is normal and common to us here in this life. And what he wants us to learn is that we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We're here for a short time. Our eternity is in heaven with him. And in light of our eternal citizenship, we're to live like citizens of heaven while we're on the earth. And remember, Moses would say, remember, God loves you so much. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be happy but he wants you to be happy in the context of holiness. Lord, help us to take that with us this week. 
Help us to learn, Lord, that uh, you care more about us than we can begin to imagine. And we ask, Lord, that uh, as you lead and as you direct, that we might be continually reminded that you are the holy God and you have told us in your word, be ye holy, for I am holy. Thank you for the examples in Numbers. Thank you for the instruction in Numbers and 1 Corinthians. We needed to be reminded. We forget. It's not an excuse, but it slips our mind, and we need to be brought back to center. We are awed by you. We are overwhelmed by you. You are the holy God. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me? Our prayer for the week from Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.